This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hello, we're here at the NMA conference at the Park Plaza Hotel in London. Advisors have just finished their lovely salmon lunch and listened to an excellent presentation from historian and author David Odesega. I'm Jack Gilbert, Deputy Editor of New Model Advisor. And David, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Good to be here. So, David, uh, one of the things that really struck me from, from your talk just now was the sense of how, how much of a, a kind of a reawakening we've seen um, from, from the former, former British colonies, former colonies around the world, and, and the way that we've seen this movement that has, has, has addressed the past evils of, of slavery and colonialism. I wanted to know, when you were a student studying history, did you ever imagine we'd see such a movement and awakening from these former, former British colonies? I didn't, and I didn't think we'd be having these conversations here in Britain, but to be honest, I didn't think we'd be having them three years ago. Um, history's sort of not linear. Our kind of capacity to discuss certain issues, to have certain conversations, and to make changes doesn't sort of follow a, a sort of steady upwards. upwards. Um, I think we've had just led to a period where there's been an incredible acceleration in our society's willingness to discuss certain ideas, and I think similar things are happening um, in other parts of the world. Uh, to me, the big thing is that our history in this country, the centre of what was the biggest empire the world's ever seen, is by its nature a global shared history. Um, and I think there's exciting conversations and necessary debates to be had about um, about recognising that. And you talk about that kind of acceleration of, of change when it comes to, to memory and to, to collective memory about these events. How, how much do, an influence do you think social media has upon that? that acceleration? Do you think that's a factor in, in contributing to that, that that speed of change? Well, I mean, there's a lot that's wrong with social media. There's a lot of damage that it can do. It can spread misinformation more rapidly than information. But it also has these kind of you know, remarkable moments. Uh, I mentioned in the talk uh, a lecture that Shashi Tharoor, who's an uh, Indian politician and historian, gave in 2015. That was a 15-minute talk about Britain's historical role in India from the 18th to the 20th century. And um, that went, was watched tens of millions of times. It was sort of all over every Indian university campus back in 2015. Um, there are these astonishing moments when social media can can elevate a voice or an argument and begin a debate or, or advance a debate. Um, and so for all the sort of negativities and negatives that come with um, social media, uh, it can, you know, on its day, it can be amazing. And, and we're in this kind of moment, which you talked about as well, of this, this movement of former British colonies kind of Look, addressing the past, the past, and the past evils of of, of slavery, um, and you mentioned the example of Barbados and 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 the, and the, the movement that, that that's going on there around their colonial past. What, how, where do you see this going in, in five or ten years' time? Where do you think we'll end up with with, with this movement? I think it's going to take longer. I think what's happening is generational change. Um, to take Britain as um, as the centre of this story, uh, though I think very often it shouldn't be. Um, 
I think we have a generation that are emerging that just doesn't, for reasons I don't understand, have the same relationship with history that their parents or their grandparents have. They don't look to history to be told comforting stories about Britain and Britishness. They look to history for a range of um, acknowledgments about the past. They don't expect it all to be a constant procession of heroes and glorious chapters. And I think that is very different to earlier generations for whom history was recreation. You went to history to feel good about yourself, to be told you were special from an exceptional people, from an exceptional country with a unique history that was always on the right side of history. Um, for reasons, as I said, I don't understand. Um, I think there's a generation emerging now that just doesn't have that relationship with history. And that means that they're more open. And that's why we've seen these kind of the, the, the downing of the statue of Edward Colston in, in Bristol. And we've seen this, these, these kind of actions by these young, young protesters. Well, I think the toppling of statues are the sort of big headline grabbing events. But in some ways, you know, I think it's, uh, it's bubbling under the surface. The, um, the amount of reading, the amount of discussion, um, we had during 2020, there were Black Lives Matter protests in towns where there's almost no black population, where kind of half the young kids in small towns got up, organized using social media. Again, great thing about social media, they organized themselves, had demonstrations, they took the knee in, in solidarity with, um, with black people around the world. Uh, it's never happened before. You know, most of the struggles against racism have been led by black people or they've been exclusively by, done by black, uh, black people uh, or brown people, people who are affected by racism. These are young people for whom racism is not their daily experience, but who reject it and who use their energies and their, and their social networks to combat it. It's absolutely unique. So CityWise uh, Financial Publishers, we write about wealth managers, financial advisors, fund managers. And, and one of the things that struck me from your, from your speech, David, was the, the interconnectedness between the financial system, the City of London, which we can almost see from the window we're looking at right now, and, and slavery, and how, how the two were so, so combined um, over the decades and centuries. Do you think that people are surprised when you tell them how, how, how much of a connection there was between between the city, between you know UK financial institutions and slavery, and that went up long past slavery was abolished. I think people have got used to the idea of marginalising slavery as a small thing that happened over there and not really part of British history. And if you take the Guildhall at the centre of the city, the, there are statues there of William Beckford, one of the most significant slave owners in British history. There's a statue of John Cass, who was, a, who was a member and a member of the Court of Assistance of the Royal African Company, the company that transported more people into slavery than any in British history. That's one building in the centre of the City of London with two statues of slave traders. Um, there could easily be a statue of Edward Colston there, had he not uh, spent all his money, lavished it upon Bristol if he'd spent it on the City of London, which is, of course, where he made his money. Um, there could easily be a statue of Colston in the Guildhall or somewhere in the City of London. These connections have been They've been dissolved away for such a long time that remaking them is shocking to many people. Um, and I think there is a sort of a feeling, I think it's a hope rather than an assessment, that this is an academic or a moral fashion that's going to last for a few years and go away. This is the result of already 60, 70 years of incredible scholarship, 
that sort of began in the sort of 50s and 60s in Britain, America, and the Caribbean. Um, and it's, you know, two generations in, it's having this moment of flowering, this moment of becoming a public history. This is not a passing fad. This is a positive process. This is a nation, a group of other nations, recognizing the full nature of their history rather than using history as a form of recreation. Mm. One of the things that's really, uh, reading about the subject uh, fairly recently was something I came across was, I, did, I hadn't realized about was the, the Zong massacre where slaves were, it was about 130 slaves were thrown yeah. off uh, a British ship. That's right. It was because the, the slave owners believed they would get more money from the insurance payout than yeah. from the value of the slaves themselves. They could value the slaves as lost, as spoiled goods. And, and claim on the insurance. Yeah. And it, and it just astounded me, the fact that the, the British financial system was so, it, it, it was, it, you know, slavery was... A product of the financial system. There was what we can't, we can't, there was no disconnection between the two things. And well, if you read the work of academics like Nick Draper, um, what you realize is that the, the sugar business and the slavery business that are um, involve huge amounts of capital, um, that uh, there is long delays between investment and return, uh, that you have to understand the time value of money, um, that this is about international, global trade, that this was one of the places in which the British learnt. Um, the financial skills, in some ways copied them, many of them from the Dutch, who'd been the pioneers here, um, that made the city, the city of London um, what it was. If you think about the, um, the monopoly companies created in the 17th century, the East India Company, the Royal African Company, the Guinea Company, um, a lot of them, not all of them, there's also the Muscovy Company and the, and the, uh, the Orient Company, the company that trades to um, the Levant, to Turkey, um, a lot of them are to do with empire and what is going to become empire and what is what is going to become the slave trade so this was just an absolutely integral part not just of the economics uh that made the the emergence of a financial system in london possible it was part of its evolution this is how it developed these are the industries through which um one of the industries through which it sort of gained the experience the insurance um system lloyds of london were deeply involved in ensuring uh, the slave ships, and they are um, at this moment looking into that history. Uh, as I said, you know, I think one of the one of the things to be said about the financial sector is, I think there's huge willingness, um, which will surprise many people, I think, to confront these histories. I, I work in, you know, rather liberal parts of the economy, uh, television, publishing. Um, they're always horrified when I tell people in television and publishing and newspapers that I think the, the city of London and finance, the financial sector, is far more willing to confront these histories than, and to confront inequalities and, and diversity than, um, than those rather sort of fluffy liberal sectors of the economy. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm often very impressed. I mean, no one's doing brilliantly. There's a long way to go. But I think there is a recognition of history and a recognition that we need to change the, the story on diversity and inclusion in the city, which is, you know, I think, ahead of the game. On, on that subject of, of what we can do as individuals, obviously our readers are uh, advisors. Effectively, they are the gatekeepers of their clients' money. They invest their money, millions of pounds in some cases, of client money on, on their behalf. And we've seen this huge movement around ESG where, where advisors and, and other financial institutions are, are focused on investing uh, sustainably investing, you know, away from big carbon polluters, for example. Do you think their advisors should think about when they make investment decisions, when they invest in a company or decide not to invest in a company, about its past links to colonialism, slavery, 
and how it is dealing with those links today? I think people need to work out which companies have got skeletons in the closet. But I think well, more importantly, which companies are going to be slow at dealing with this. I've, I've, I've spoken to companies who are engaged in research in history who I thought would never, ever you know, grasp the nettle. They're companies I thought would, would eke this out and pretend it never happened and hope it all went away. There was incredible willingness by organizations to confront these histories. And very often it's motivated by the younger people within those companies. Now, those same people are the people who are going to be the investors and the people who are going to want the services of fund managers and assistants and advisors um, in the future. This is, this is who they are. This is at the heart of their thinking. These issues about equality um, uh, and race, they're not marginal issues. They're not political concerns that they have. They're part of their identity. Um, and I think we're at a moment of quite seismic generational change, which will affect everything. I look at my students, what are their obsessions? Their obsessions are social justice and equality and climate. And that's not going away? It's not, because I said it's not a stance, it's not a fashion, it is who they are. And, and you've been giving these talks for, for many years, Dave, and we had a very interesting reaction to your one. I mean, I don't think we were saying we've never seen as many advisors come up to, to someone, to a speaker afterwards and, and kind of comment on their speech and, and, and talk about, you know, wanting to, to meet them. We also had an interesting moment where you, you challenged someone in, in the crowd and, you know, very effectively um, killed off his, his argument and, and, and the point he was trying to make. I'm interested to know, since you started giving these kind of talks to, to corporates and to, to, to industries, how your reaction has been, has changed over the years. How, how was it received initially and how is it being received today? I mean, I've always felt the reception to be uh, to be warm and to be interested. I think what's changed is that I think everyone gets this. I used to spend a lot of time trying to explain the basics, trying to ex try to make a case for why these histories matter. I think it's much more obvious why these histories matter now, um, and I have to spend less time sort of making making that case. And I think that gives me more time to talk about the opportunities. Um, our society is changing enormously. It's changing in attitudes. It's also changing in demography. Our society is changing. It's not just changing in terms of attitudes, it's changing in demographics. We're in the middle of London. The working population of the city is 36, getting over 37%, not white. Um, it's going to be 50% in a few decades' time. Um, we need a history and a collective set of stories that actually reflects who we are as a nation, not who we were in the 1950s, or more importantly, who we imagine we were in the 1950s. Um, we need a, a, a functional fit-for-purpose history that recognizes everybody's stories because these histories, empire and slavery and movement and migration, they're the stories that explain how we all came to be here and came to be British. Um, without them, um, you just can't make sense of modern Britain. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.